Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I began that quotation from our Old Testament reading when the prophetess is speaking. After, of course, the law is found and great weeping takes place, but it's in the penitence, it's in the humbling of oneself that the Lord promises not to forsake, but actually to bless. This morning we're going to continue in our um, Sermon on the Mount series, so thank you Deacon Jared for reading to us uh, verses 31 through 37. And let me remind you of a few things uh, before we get into the text. And the first is this, if you've missed the last uh, several Sundays, let me say again that God demands obedience from his children, not perfection. He demands obedience and not perfection. And that the key to obedience is repentance. It's the repentance of of sin, the turning away of sin, the asking God to forgive. Now, as you heard um, our uh, deacon Jared read the, old, uh, the New Testament here, the gospel reading, you know that these two passages are really, really difficult. As I was preparing this week, I thought to myself, why didn't I just skip over this section? It would have been a lot easier to preach. But here it is, the words of our Lord. A hard word that deals with marriage and divorce, and a hard word that deals with oaths, with how our words as believers ought to have truth value in them, no matter what. So we're going to see that in many ways these can be linked together, that there there is in marriage a covenant both of word and of flesh, and that in um, oaths we find a covenant of uh, words. Let me begin here. Uh, Divorce is something that we see um, all too often, unfortunately, uh, in the West, uh, we see that, um, that people uh, have been getting divorced, kind of no-fault divorces for years and years, and we're going to see here that our Lord provides an exception, and I'll talk about an exception that St. Paul provides as well, but let me say this, um, there are those of us here this morning, I know, who have been through a divorce, some divorces um, for justified reasons, um, as we'll see what those are in a little bit, some for unjustified reasons. Let me say this, um, divorce is something that we wear on our sleeves if you've been through it. It's something that is out in the open. It's unlike our Lord's words about oaths, about things that you can kind of hide, that you can secretly get around. So I know this teaching may be difficult at first, but let me remind you that as we hear from the law of the Lord and his requirements of us, he gives us grace through repentance, even when we have failed. And the Sermon on the Mount is about how to live a kingdom ethic, and all of us, by the way, have failed to live in obedience. So we all stand here together as sinners before our Lord that are saved by grace. 
So as we move into our gospel reading, let me talk just a moment about marriage, kind of what is marriage according to the Christian scriptures. Well, marriage is a word and a flesh covenant union between one man and one woman with the witness of God. It's funny, um, as I do uh, kind of premarital counseling for those that I'm going to be marrying, I remind them that actually, you know, they're not necessarily making vows uh, to God, they're making vows to each other. And the pastor or the priest who stands in front of them is actually standing in on behalf of the entire church hearing the vows that are made to one another. So there's a verbal vow that's made, but then also, of course, in the coming together, in the marriage bed, in the consummation of a marriage, there is a, there's a union of flesh as well. And this goes back all the way to Genesis uh, chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, again, the, the church, not even the society, but the church has actually lost um, a bit of what marriage is. And actually, the first, I, I think, uh, as we as Anglicans believe, because in our, in our vows, we, we put this uh, this way in, in, in our service, the purpose of marriage given by God is first for procreation. It's to fulfill that first command, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, again, there are some that are not able to have children, and, and that, of course, uh, they're able to adopt, or they may not have children, but invest in spiritual, uh, spiritual children, and that's great, but a marriage between a man and a woman must have at least the possibility of having children. This is why marriage is between one man and one woman, a union of word and of flesh. We know that in Ephesians 5, St. Paul talks about marriage then, not only of being about, yes, a procreation, a vow between a man and a woman, but also that um, the marriage itself is a witness. It's an icon. This union is an icon of Jesus and his church. This covenant between Jesus and his church. Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is his bride. And they come together, and in that that act of coming together of the Lord coming to his church and the church receiving the grace of God, salvation is given. And we think about the coming together of a man and a woman. Um, and if the Lord, of course, sees fit to provide an offspring or a child, it's through the coming together of one man and one woman, a new creation is given. It's a beautiful thing. So then the purpose of marriage, procreation, but also a witness to those in the marriage of the love of Christ for his church and the sacrifice, the submission of the church to Jesus and all of this kind of moving on, uh, you know, with each other, showing the grace and forgiveness to each other, but also to the world. So what does divorce do then to that? Well, divorce rips apart the covenant of word and of one flesh. If you have been through a divorce or you know someone who's been through a divorce, you know that it feels as if you are being ripped apart or ripped in two. You're ripped in two because you feel that one flesh union. We know that our Lord says in Malachi that, that God hates divorce. This is what Christians, it's what we believe, it's what we teach. He hates divorce. We know, of course, also that here in our text, our Lord is going to give a teaching on divorce and I want us to make sure that we're reading Matthew 5 in light of also our word, our, the word of our Lord in Matthew 19. But let me begin here in uh, chapter 5, verse 31. If you want to follow along, you may, or you may listen. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we see here that if we read that and then we, we move over to Matthew 19, we're going to see the, the, fuller, um, the fuller teaching of our Lord as well. Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered them, and this is what he says. I want us to read this in light of Matthew 5. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Our Lord is quoting the Old Testament. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Our Lord is saying what the Lord, uh, what God has, has put together through marriage, a man and a woman, let no one separate. But then they said to Jesus, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Again, our Lord is very clear about the sanctity, the holiness of marriage of this two-flesh union. Now, in the time of our Lord, uh, we need to know a little bit about what was going on specifically with the rabbinic schools that were teaching about divorce. Now, in Matthew 19, they said, well, didn't Moses, Moses command this? Well, we look in the scriptures, Moses didn't command anything. He allowed an, an exception. He allowed some exceptions. And then our Lord gives his definitive teaching that it's only for, um, for unfaithfulness, for uh, porneia, that word for sexual kind of fornication, that one may get a divorce. But there were two schools going on around Jesus' time, rabbinical schools. One was the Hillel school. And they basically taught that you could divorce a woman if you were a man for anything. Some examples that were given is um, if, you, uh, if your wife uh, burned your food. This is actually part of a rabbinical thing. If she burned your food, then you could put her out legally and then marry uh, someone else. There are other kind of crazy, fanciful examples that had been um, really kind of given on the street to your average Jews from some of the Pharisees who followed this Hillel school of interpretation. But then there was one other school, the Shammai school, that our Lord was actually a part of. And the Shammai said, uh, the Shammai school, um, the rabbi Shammai said this, that divorce should be few and far between, much more conservative on the notion of marriage and divorce. And our, our Lord found himself in that school, but going beyond showing great concern for marriage. Now, this text here is called the Matthean uh, exception, that if sexual infidelity happens, then one partner has the right to divorce. But let me say this, not only divorce, but remarry. Let me say this, though, I have seen with my own eyes, and some of you, where one spouse has sinned gravely against the other and has committed some type of sexual impropriety, some sexual sin against the marriage, but the Lord has redeemed it. But the Lord has redeemed it. So again, this is, this is um, not something the Lord commands. If your spouse is unfaithful that you must divorce, no, it's just that there is an allowance here. 
there's an allowance. So again, for us, we see that our Lord held and holds the highest standard for marriage, but he does give this exception. But we know, too, that St. Paul gave an exception. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. St. Paul says, To the rest I say to you, not uh, the Lord, but I, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, this is called the Pauline permission here, that if a spouse is an unbeliever, it's actually best, though, not to divorce, to stay with them if they consent to live in the same household, because it's actually through the faithfulness of the believing spouse that the unbeliever might come to the knowledge of God and be saved. Now, of course, we have many instances within, within marriages where one departs the faith and wants to leave, and, and you know, Paul says his words here, you can let them go, and you're free. But also, there are times when through, whether it's physical violence or abuse, that, um, that it's obvious that there are no fruits in the life of that spouse, no Christian fruits whatsoever. And through the discernment of a pastor, of a priest, of the church at large, through the scriptures, that it is then you know, intuitive that that person has left the faith, and then there may be room, of course, under this provision to leave the marriage. But again, beloved, marriage is a sacramental union that is meant to last a lifetime. That's meant to last a lifetime. But what does this leave us with here now for those specifically who have been through uh, divorces? Well, if someone were recently uh, divorced from their spouse and came to me and they were divorced for maybe this kind of no-fault divorce or they were just kind of sick of living with, other, with each other, they had different visions of life and they moved on, but both were believers, I would plead with them to stay in the marriage to stick it out, to have pastoral counseling, to, to be in community with the church and to have that marriage restored. Or if they were recently divorced, to try to seek reconciliation. But there are times when a divorced person gets remarried. And my advice at that moment in time is not to divorce that person and try to go back into a marriage, but to ask God for forgiveness and to repent and to receive the grace of God and to live as best you can uh, in that marriage as it stands. So, beloved, God hates divorce. Now, there are some of you that might be in rocky marriages right now, and you're thinking, I just, I, I want to leave it, I want to be out of this. Um, no, because uh, our Lord not only hates divorce, but he's saying that if you stay, if you stay, the salvation of your partner could be at hand. Let me give another uh, thing that I've seen over the years. And of course, I've only done a handful of counseling in my short time as a priest, pastoral counseling, both marriages that have been in trouble and, and those that are just starting. 
But I have never witnessed nor heard of two spouses that are in much disagreement and are thinking about divorce. If they move to repentance and to seek forgiveness and to do the will of God and really want to stay in the marriage because they believe that God has said you need to stay, I've I've never seen that not work out. Repentance is key, moving back to one another. Again, if you've been through divorce, know that the Lord, through repentance, the Lord forgives sins, and we move on. For those of you that are thinking about divorce, there are two exceptions here, two clauses, but even those should be entered into very lightly and with great counsel from the church. So now let me move from marriage to oaths. Verse 33, let us look at verse 33 together. Our Lord says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. The other day I took Levi James Novotny, my firstborn child, whom I love dearly. I took him uh, to lunch. This was about a week or so ago. And because our kids are homeschooled, every now and then I have the delight of taking them on a bit of a field trip during lunch. Matter of fact, I got to lecture at Beeson on preaching recently. I got to bring Levi with me because it was his lunch period. It was a wonderful thing. But about a week ago, I took him to lunch, and he looked at his sisters on the way out, and he fa- I, I think he didn't know this, of course, but he found himself in an oath, and it was an interesting situation that I felt was very, um, uh, very pertinent to our discussion here from our Lord. As he was walking out the door, he made this kind of quasi-oath to his sisters that he would bring back um, a Coke to them. He would get a refill and bring back a, a Coke to them. But of course, as he walked out, it was, you know... Uh, Maybe, 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 maybe. He kind of said maybe where they couldn't hear it and we were out the door. It was this kind of quasi-oath that was made. And I would like to ask you, uh, do you think that the refill was brought back? Let me just ask you, do you think that? A few of you said yes. You must, Okay, praise the Lord. You should come into our home and see many things. I'm kidding. Um, no, uh, Levi, who, by the way, has brought many, t- many occasions things back to his sisters. He does it actually quite often. I'm, I'm being hard on him. But he did not bring the Coke back, all right? He broke the oath. Now, but it hit me, I was like, this is, this is actually really, really good. Because you see, in the time of our Lord, uh, many of the Pharisees had, had um, allowed these elaborate oaths to, be take, uh, to, to take place. So you would swear by God in heaven, maybe on the holy city of Jerusalem, and you would give kind of all these, these, um, these words that if they were not said perfectly, would allow you to get out of the oath. So there's almost this kind of like... Um, I say not, 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 not deception that was fully taken place, but, but the, the, um, the kind of point behind so much of this was that the truth was not told up front. The yes was not yes, the no was not no. You had to enter into some elaborate oath to make your word have bite or have truth. And our Lord is, is saying, let's, let's get away from that. Matter of fact, the Old Testament background is some of, of our words and keeping being honest and these things and, and the underlying, I think, commandment uh, that's in the background here. 
We know from Exodus 20, it's the third commandment, you shall not take the name of, your, of the Lord your God in, in vain. We don't swear to God in our normal speech to make sure someone understands that we're going to do what we do. That's invoking the name of our Lord and taking it in vain. Numbers 30 says this, when a man vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not uh, break his word. Of course, there is truthfulness that needs to take place. Also in Deuteronomy 23, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not um, be slack to, to pay it. And Jesus is saying we need to get rid of kind of all that language of swearing to God or taking these, these kind of these vows to make sure that people will believe us. Because as Christians, um, our speech ought to be plain and truthful and believable. And I know that I've done some of this in my own life. You know when you get really worked up and you promise, okay, look, I promise I'm going to do this, that, and the other, and you kind of make this almost quasi-oath to somebody else just so they'll believe you? Well, oftentimes that's a sign that we've done things in the past that would make that person not believe us, so we've got to mount, on, mount all these oaths on top of it. And our Lord gives an instruction. Don't do any of that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. For if you're adding anything on to that, it's, um, in, the, in the words of our Lord, evil. Let me quote John Stott here, who, who I think is very helpful in this situation. He said a couple of things. The first is this. He said that um, uh, many times, of course, the, uh, the Pharisees argued that what the law was really prohibiting um, was not necessarily taking the name of the Lord in vain, though it would, but by taking the name of the Lord in vain. That is, false swearing. They concluded that this command here would mean only profanity about God's name. But our Lord goes beyond that. And they developed these elaborate rules for taking vows. They listed which, formulate, or which formula were permissible. And then they added, the Pharisees, that only those formula, which, intended the, which included the divine name, made the vow binding. That if you didn't invoke the name of God, then you could get out of it. But of course, Jesus hates sophistry of this kind. He wants truth. So as Christians, our words ought to be not only truthful, but ought to be reliable and trustworthy by those that are around us. You know, I think we, we miss the fact, too, that our Lord says a few things that are so, so important in this section on oaths. He says this, um, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. We're not sovereign over our lives or the future. Don't make these humongous promises to people. Just say simply, yes, yes, I can, or no, I can't. Um, this week, of course, as Jennifer's mother is, is back in the hospital, unfortunately, but something that I love that, that Sharla would often say, Jennifer's mother, when we would go to visit, is um, at night when we would give her a kiss or a hug, we would say, well, we'll see you in the morning, and she would just always say, Lord willing, like, Lord willing. Kind of the future is up to God. And of course, we believe that as Christians and our Lord is alluding to God's sovereignty here with oaths. But let me also um, conclude with this. Not only does he say, let your yes be yes and your no uh, be no, he says any more than that comes from evil. When we start adding things to our speech to get others to believe us, usually it comes from a wicked heart or it comes from a heart where you're not wanting to commit fully. So let me say that if we don't Know the answer, sometimes it's best to be quiet. If we can't fully say yes, just be honest and say, I can't fully say yes. Or if we have to say no, say no, rather than kind of um, hemming and hawing and leading people 
astray and oftentimes um, doing damage uh, to the name of our Lord. But finally, brothers and sisters, let me uh, conclude with this. In the way that we view marriage, two, in the way that we view divorce, and in the way, too, that we view how our speech ought to be truthful, we're communicating certain things to the world. We're communicating that as Christians, when we enter into a marriage, both in word and the sacramental union of flesh, we mean it and that God has blessed it. And then when we say yes and when we say no, we really mean these things. In a culture where people are often politicking and using language to deceive and to manipulate, we're just truthful and honest from the get-go. And finally, remember, as we, were, as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, all of these teachings, thus far on anger, on lust, on divorce, and on oaths, have a purpose. And the purpose is this. We found it at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So that all who see our good works may glorify our Father who is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.